Welcome to Sound Practice, the business podcast for physicians and healthcare leaders, hosted by Mike Sakopoulos and produced by the American Association for Physician Leadership. The new field of informatics offers hope of medical advancement. Artificial intelligence also offers hope of tremendous advancements for medicine. While we might think of informatics and artificial intelligence tools as being in the domain of universities or high-tech firms, we should be relieved to know the United States Department of Defense is using both to promote the health of our service men and women. The United States military's vast databases are uniquely situated to yield medical discoveries. Prepare to be impressed and proud of the work being done by the Department of Defense. Let's begin. Dr. Teta is a U.S. Navy captain. He is a board-certified heart and lung transplant surgeon. He was named as Emerging Leader in Health and Medicine Scholar by the National Academy of Medicine and serves as the Chief Medical Informatics Officer for the United States Navy. Currently, Dr. Teta serves as the Health Mission Chief for Warfighter Health at the Joint Artificial Intelligence Center in the Department of Defense. Dr. Teta, welcome to Sound Practice. Mike, thank you for the uh, kind invitation and a warm introduction. I appreciate it. Well, we appreciate you you being with us. I'm interested. How did you become interested in the field of informatics? Wow. Well, uh, you know, that's, uh, I think your audience will appreciate this. It, it actually is a natural extension from my discipline of cardiac surgery, believe it or not. The Society of Thoracic Surgeons, a society that I belong to and have been a member of for many years now, uh, back in the uh, 80s and 90s, pioneered the Society for Thoracic Surgery database, which was a self-reporting application platform for which surgeons would report their outcomes and uh, basically codify the morbidity and mortality for cardiac mm -hmm. surgery. Uh, and that was the uh, culmination of quality improvement measures that have endured for decades. Um, that uh, function of collecting the data, analyzing it, and then benchmarking uh, best practices really became, I think, one of the hallmarks and foundations of why cardiac surgery is, 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 is the practice and the discipline it is today. Uh, so when I learned about this new and burgeoning subspecialty in clinical informatics, which was essentially taking information and technology to improve the practice of medicine, I immediately gravitated to it because it was just a, an extension of what I was already doing. And so when the board certification became uh, formalized uh, uh, several years ago, um, uh, I, uh, I pursued that path and, uh, and, and I've never looked back. It's been, it's been wonderful to augment uh, informatics uh, and technology to improve the practice of, of what I do in cardiac surgery and, and also you know, medical care and delivery writ large. Let's discuss one of the areas of research where you've been using artificial intelligence, suicide prevention. Can you yeah. tell me about Project Orion? Yeah, sure. So uh, a very exciting initiative. Uh, I, I will step back one, uh, you know, sort of step and just uh, give some connections for how the leap from informatics to artificial intelligence sort of came about. I 
had the, the fortune because of my uh, military career and the opportunity to attend the National War College at the National Defense University. At the time, I was the only physician in my class of 200 outstanding leaders in the military and interagency government um, uh, domain. And uh, during that year, uh, with my clinical informatics background, I found uh, the unique opportunity to uh, spend time on independent research. And uh, I chose to look at uh, a field which is getting a lot of attention, which is artificial intelligence. And so I married the two disciplines, artificial intelligence and military medicine, and wrote a thesis and did a lot of research. Uh, and that led to the opportunity that I have now mm -hmm. to be a part of an outstanding institution uh, within the Department of Defense, which you highlighted, the Joint Artificial Intelligence Center. Uh, and we have a military health mission there and a warfighter health mission. And so we've been applying the tool, I will say emphasize tool of artificial intelligence uh, to help uh, address the work that we do in healthcare. And one of the challenges that we have uh, among others, of course, is preventing suicide and self-destructive behaviors. And we realize that with the accumulation of information that we have, uh, and because of computer power and algorithms, we can detect patterns that may in, in fact help inform clinicians as they deal with and address behavioral health issues. And, um, and that's, that's in short, you know, at a very high level, what Project Orion is really uh, doing. It's, it's collecting information, analyzing information, uh, creating uh, patterns of recognition for potential behavioral traits that could be self-destructive, and then informing the practitioners, not telling them what to do, but giving them tools to help better address uh, this you know, significant and grave challenge that we have, not only in the military, uh, but certainly in society writ large as well. Is the, the database being used for this project uh, strictly those in the um, military service? Uh, yeah, for our project, uh, in, in terms of that context of Project Orion, that's mainly military uh, personnel. And, uh, and again, it, it uh, collects and draws upon uh, a number of different data points, uh, service members' records, and of course, uh, uh, health uh, information that we have. Um, and again, it's not uh, you know, a surveillance tool per se. It's more uh, giving us a pattern recognition. It's in an aggregate. So what it does is it helps us to define that there are certain uh, behavioral and trait characteristics that we recognize for unfortunately uh, individuals that have had a successful suicides. Um, you know, unlike the civilian sector in the military, when uh, an individual um, uh, commits suicide uh, and has this unfortunate tragedy occur, uh, there's a very in-depth forensic investigation that occurs. I mean, it's uh, it pretty in-depth. Uh, we look at uh, the service members' uh, social connections, their financial uh, history, their uh, their service record, um, you know, what kinds of uh, assignments that they have, what potential stresses were in their life. And we interview their social network as well. Uh, and, and all of this gets, um, you know, presented in a, in, a, in a report that could be hundreds of pages long. So if you can imagine, uh, you know, the number of people that have unfortunately committed suicide, each one of them having this report, it's a dense amount of information. Uh, and uh, a lot to go through for any one individual. Uh, well, you know, applying an artificial intelligence tool like natural language processing, uh, you know, which has given us the benefit of having electronic books <laughs> that we could only just Google and, and find all these pearls of wisdom and we don't have to use the Dewey Decimal System anymore. You can imagine how 
having a, a tool like that can help to sift uh, through these reports and start finding patterns. Uh, you know, people that uh, have had self-destructive behaviors seem to have also financial stresses. No surprise there, right? And and so these are the types of things that can help inform leaders and help inform healthcare providers that if we do see some of these potential triggers in the patients that we're caring for, we can potentially uh, alert them to some of the challenges that they may be facing. And then uh, more importantly, point them to resources that can help them avert destructive behaviors and of course, prevent a suicide. Excellent. So doctor, you're the author of the art of human care with artificial intelligence. Can you tell us a little bit about your book? Who's the target audience? Why did you write it? Right, great question, Mike. So uh, the art of human care, I, I will say is a labor of love. It's been a, a book series that I have been working on now for uh, well over a decade. And it's the culmination of, a, of my, my years in practice. And uh, I was fortunate enough to, years ago to meet uh, uh, an individual who I've always admired from afar. I read his books, and you may uh, be of the right generation to appreciate Chicken Soup for the Soul uh, and uh, that great work. And uh, Jack Canfield and his associates have been sort of my book coach and mentors. And, uh, and I told him I would like to do something in the similar genre but for healthcare and uh, being a, uh, a budding artist whose uh, artistic career was cut short by my dad who told me I would never make money as an artist and I better go to science and engineering school. <laughs> I've always wanted to be an artist. So this book, The Art of Human Care in the series in fact represents sort of the, the, the dream fulfilled. And so uh, just like all series, I started with the principal book, The Art of Human Care and then I wrote one for COVID and then artificial intelligence really started to describe those principles of, of my practice of healthcare and the delivery of healthcare, but also highlighting and uh, showcasing the, the great applications of artificial intelligence and how they could be applied to improving healthcare. So the book is really targeted and aimed at anyone who's interested in improving healthcare and interested in how artificial intelligence can help serve a great number of people um, and address some challenges in healthcare that we've, uh, you know, unfortunately found very elusive in terms of finding solutions. Um, so it's an attempt at, at sort of giving a, uh, a glimpse into the future, if you will, and also uh, presenting uh, individuals with what the art of the possible is and probably highlighting uh, some things that they may not even know uh, are already at the forefront of, of healthcare delivery with uh, the application of AI. For purposes of our audience, we'll put a, a link uh, to Dr. Teta's book in the, the the show notes. So I'm particularly interested in the use of art in the title of your book. So medicine's both an art and a science. That's right. How does this play out when using artificial intelligence? Well, I think, uh, you know, you, you said it, you said it well, uh, medicine is an art and a science. And I think those of us that have been in the practice of medicine realize that for all of the scientific background and and the dogma of, of the scientific process that we bring to bear when we take care of patients, we also realize that we're taking care of human beings and every human being is unique and they, they are a unique expression of, of the human condition, if you will. And uh, when you're doing that and you're being attentive to that as a healthcare provider, you, you can't just apply uh, you know, science and dogma all the time. There is absolutely an art to taking care of individuals because 
as I mentioned, everyone is a unique individual. And what art is to me, it represents the um, expression of, of the human condition. And, and when you're taking care of humans, you, you need to have an appreciation of how that human being is being expressed. And, and the art, um, you know, has both a literal as well as a sort of uh, a thorough uh, sort of connotation. So in the book, in all of the books in the series, there is actual art in the book. <laughs> some of the art is done by me. Uh, some of it in my first book was done by my daughter. Uh, I, I'm encouraging her artistic career. I won't curtail it. I won't curtail it as my dad did. <laughs> I'm nurturing it. Uh, but, you know, more more foundationally, Mike, you know, art is, is a very healing um, medium for us. If you think about, you know, you know, the times you felt sad or blue or happy or joyful or, or just kind of uh, been uh, exposed to something that touches you, you'll find that it was an artistic piece, whether it was music or it was a sculpture or it was a, a picture. And we find that this universal language of art uh, is something that transcends all languages, right? You don't have to have a translation <laughs> when you look at uh, the Mona Lisa, perhaps, or you listen to a uh, a melody uh, from Beethoven, or or like uh, you know one of my favorite artists, uh, Bob Marley. That music just translates uh, and it touches the soul, and it helps you to feel better. And so the book talks about how art is an expression of the human condition, but also how art heals. Uh, and so with respect to artificial intelligence, uh, we all know that artists are create. And creatives are, and, 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 and that creative power of making connections uh, is, is, is really what I think bears in mind with all innovation, including AI. So this book, I know, uh, I, I hope it's a, hopefully a teaser for your audience, is it, it brings together all of these elements, art, creativity, innovation, and the uh, expression of the human condition. But uh, in the context of artificial intelligence shows uh, the audience and the readers um, what is possible, what can be imagined, and potentially what the future may hold for us in, in the, the domain of uh, healthcare delivery in the, in, the, in the world of artificial intelligence. Doctor, that may have been the single best answer to any question I've asked on this podcast. Uh, <laughs> look, you are a, a, a gifted surgeon practicing in the area of heart and lung transplant. And it occurs to me that leadership skills needed when focusing upon a patient may vary from leadership skills needed when focusing upon the health of our service men and women. Is there a difference? That's a great question. Uh, you know, there have been tomes, right, written about leadership, philosophy, practice, how to become a best lead, how to become a good leader, who the best leaders are. I will say that what I've learned is that there is actually not too much of a, a dissimilarity from those two things that you mentioned, you know, leading a team in the OR, taking care of a patient, or leading in battle or in combat or in the military for that matter. What I believe leadership really encompasses and embodies is being a servant for those that you are taking care of and in charge of and are responsible for. So whether you are responsible for that patient, you are serving that patient, right? You are, you are not dictating to the patient or you shouldn't be dictating to the patient what they need to do and what they're going to do. You're providing a service to them. You're giving them information so that they can make a good, a good decision about their health. And in my case, in surgery, 
I'm outlining to them plans of, of, of an intervention that could potentially avert a catastrophe or save a life or in some way bring new life to them in, in the domain of transplantation. When I think about my military career now of almost 25 years and serving on an aircraft carrier, serving in Afghanistan and the, the deserts there, and thinking about those team members that we led, uh, the best leaders, uh, and I, I'd like to think that I try to aspire to be one of those, were those that help those individuals that were doing this mission do their jobs better, you know, by giving them the tools that they needed, giving them the information that they needed, and being there to support them in, in the work in the work that they were doing. Um, and then again, that translates, I think, to um, you know, being a leadership and uh, being a leader in your community. The best leaders, right, especially now in our very uh, hostile environments of politics, we can think of those best leaders, those that we remember or reminisce are the ones that have always been the stalwarts of service, right? They've always been the ones that put the mission, community, and country before they put themselves, um, you know, sort of uh, interests at the forefront. So I think leadership is really defined as, uh, as being a servant leader to those that you are responsible for. Uh, and, and I don't think there's too much of a difference between uh, what you do when you're uh, taking care of a patient, what you do when you're leading an operating team to a uh, successful surgery, or what you do in combat. Well, certainly there's, there's heavy emphasis in the military upon teaching leadership. Can the Correct. medical profession pick up any tips on teaching leadership from the U.S. military? Oh, yeah, I think absolutely. I, I, I have been blessed to have outstanding leaders and mentors in my uh, military career, um, individuals that I've learned so much from uh, because they were always teachers. You know, they always taught and, and sort of demonstrated a way and a path forward that, uh, you know, gave me instruction and direction to overcome challenges, whether that was, well, how do you navigate <laughs> an aircraft carrier, you know, just not getting lost on one. Well, how do you do this, uh, this procedure? You know, my, uh, my mentors and, and surgeons were always the best surgeons anyway, were always those that were willing to teach and show you a better way in taking care of a patient or, or doing a complicated surgery. Um, so in the military, we do a lot of training, we do a lot of training. Uh, and we, I think, create leaders by putting, putting people in circumstances where uh, they have to solve problems and uh, and they're given a mission and they're giving a task and not really a lot of direction often, but uh, some instructions and uh, they give us the um, the opportunity to fulfill those missions and to be successful. And I think that's really what fosters a great leadership, uh, having a team come together, giving them a mission, uh, giving them some direction and then giving them the freedom to uh, solve those problems and challenges through teamwork and through collaboration. Uh, and I think that's why you, you find that uh, we have some very great leaders that come out of this sort of environment of, of the military. Uh, you have a purpose, you have a mission, uh, and you have something that's bigger than yourself and actually something that can often never be done with just an individual. You rely on a team and, and, and just that, uh, you know, sort of, uh, I think, environment creates and forces, uh, you know, many of the attributes that we ascribe to great leaders. Is there a tension in your position within the Navy um, and being a physician. And, and I'm thinking that information must be developed, which would be beneficial to the general public, but cannot be shared for security reasons. Is that, is that true? And does it create a tension for you? 
Yeah, I think it does. I I, I think uh, you know, but I think the the tension there is is uh, is one that the public should understand and appreciate, right? You know, there's a saying in the military, especially uh, you know, from among Navy people, that loose lips sink ships. <laughs> so you you don't want to give away secrets and, and information, and certainly things that are classified, you know, need to be classified for security purposes. The tension, though, for us, and and I think uh, when you 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 you, you know, juxtapose uh, health with um, you know security. Uh, and we experience this certainly when we deploy, uh, is always thinking about, you know, how do you prosecute and how do you uh, fulfill a successful mission when you have a myriad of circumstances that you have to sort of balance, right? So as healthcare professionals in the military, we are always, we are always in a supporting role of, of the line officers and the uh, folks that are charged with uh, being successful at their mission. And recognizing that we are in a supporting role, we know that the mission comes first. And as a supporting, you know, entity in the military, as a healthcare provider, we have to give the leaders information. So if there is a, uh, a mission that may uh, incur, uh, you know, harm or may put uh, people at risk, we need to sort of, you know, quantify that with the uh, with the option that. Uh, you know, perhaps we can do something a little bit different, but always keep in mind that, you know, the greater good charges uh, that we be successful in the mission. Um, so there is that tension. You're absolutely right. Uh, but I think, again, that's another one of these uh, attributes, I think, that fosters great leadership, right, to, to balance those challenges. And, and I think, uh, you know, sometimes, unlike in the civilian sector, some of our military personnel in the military emerge uh, from our experiences, uh, I think better off and better equipped to, to really deal with uh, great challenges uh, when we get into the civilian world. Is there a disconnect between medical knowledge and implementation in the, in the military? And here I'm thinking specifically about sleep. The, uh, the Navy's been criticized for not allowing enough sleep for its sailors, and yet the health consequences of restricted sleep are, are well, well known. Uh, is it difficult to move from the discovery through AI that, that you're doing to implementation? Um, you know, that's a, that's a good question. I think that's a fair, um, you know, potential criticism, but I would, I would maybe push back on it and say, I, I would say that that is just telling a partial part of the story because the military has actually been pioneers in, in safety and in, and in, and in, you know, the things and, and that, that have actually permeated to the civilian sector. For example, in aviation, naval aviation is one of the, uh, you know, stalwarts and vanguards of aviation safety. Uh, And having spent time on aircraft carrier, I could tell you there's an entire culture of safety. Uh, which includes having service members be both attentive, aware, and able to do their job and be prepared for mission success. Um, to address the question you asked about how AI can be used, I, I think uh, there are some novel um, initiatives right now that are being um, uh, tested and, uh, and, and implemented uh, throughout uh, different branches of the military and even in the civilian sector. You know, we have uh, sensors, I'm wearing one right now, a smartwatch, right, that tells you how you slept <laughs> and sure. uh, if you if you are charged, so to speak. And, uh, you know, we're, we're use, uh, utilizing some of those tools to sort of better assess whether or not we are uh, allowing folks the, the adequate time to recharge. And, you know, the Army has pioneered uh, a culture of 
of rest and, and nutrition as one of the uh, foundational elements of readiness. Um, so I think the military, you know, you know, perhaps a little bit contrary to your, your question, is actually uh, at the forefront of, of these, uh, these issues when it comes to readiness and preparedness and uh, ensuring that those that are, you know, placed in, um, in not only in harm's way, but also charged with successfully uh, protecting and defending the, the, the country uh, have all the things that they need to be successful, including rest. <laughs> So well, that's, that's great to know. And that's certainly what we, what we would all, what we all want for our uh, servicemen and men and women. As we end our time together, Dr. Teta, I'd like for you to look forward and speculate how artificial intelligence uh, will influence uh, the practice of medicine uh, in our, in our country. Can you give us some, some ideas or glimpses into the future? Yeah. Well, that's always a, uh, exercise that is uh, wrought with lots of uh, risk, right? To predict the future. <laughs> sure. I, I, had, I had one of my jobs uh, in my career that uh, placed me in a position where I was the director of, of, of futures and innovation at military medicine headquarters. It was one of, you know, one of my most exciting positions I had. And people would always ask questions uh, similar to yours. Well, what do you think is going to happen tomorrow? And I, I, I would, uh, you know, after after several uh, several answers uh, of of, of uh, uh, giving a you know response to that question and realizing almost always I was wrong, I stopped answering the questions and. <laughs> <laughs> in such a in such a fashion and what i what i did instead was uh you know to answer your question not speculate in terms of what i think will happen but uh perhaps just highlight some trends and then uh and just say if these trends continue i think we can potentially you know come to some conclusions so let me do that for uh, a way to address your question what do i think artificial intelligence will will do or, or how will it influence the future of medicine i think we need to look at the current trends right there is an enormous amount of information that we are uh gathering storing and utilizing on a daily basis in, in the domain of healthcare. the amount of information that we are uh you know producing uh, if you think about in the last uh five years or ten years uh, it's more than we probably can, <laughs> what we probably accumulated, produced in the last century, right? I mean, and just think about that, Mike, for a moment. It, you think about the amount of information and the amount of data we've collected over the last five years or ten years, and then look back a hundred years, and we've 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 eclipsed it. So, if you think about that trend continuing, and I imagine that it will continue. We need to start finding tools and ways for us to synthesize that information so that we can apply it and apply that knowledge in a useful way to improve the delivery of healthcare. And I believe that artificial intelligence as a tool will be able to help us do that. A uh, computer is very good at looking at patterns and recognizing connections. Um, you know, the human is as well, but the volume of what we have to consider now is, 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 is almost, um, inhumane for one human to do. And so we do need to use computers and leverage their power to be able to get some of these patterns and insights uh, so that we can glean useful information that will apply in a utilitarian way to uh, the delivery and improvement of healthcare. So, uh, you know, in the answer to your question, what I think is that healthcare is going to, is going to continue to fundamentally evolve um, over time. 
Uh, and because, uh, and this is another trend that I will say will have some impact and impetus on, on how to answer and address the question, the fact that we have individuals uh, and many individuals now throughout the world walking around with supercomputers in their pockets is going to actually impact the delivery of healthcare. So I think you're going to start seeing a lot more innovative approaches to healthcare. And I've been fond of making the observation that I think we are in an era, you know, and if you think about how one defines an era, it's a time of dramatic change uh, in which things will never be the same after this period of time lapses. Uh, and when you're in an era, you don't often appreciate that you're in an era until <laughs> so you sure. step back and look at it. But if we were to have that perspective, I think what we'll notice is that we are in an era of health delivery innovation. Uh, and so if you think about what happened during the pandemic, the fact that uh, many people now receive care through a forum like this, I mean, your viewers may not see that we're on camera, but, you know, doctor visits are now occurring in, in, a, in a sort of a Zoom capacity, if you will. Um, that's a fundamentally different type of paradigm that we would have uh, never considered maybe perhaps uh, 20, 30 years ago, right? But that's probably going to be more the norm now than, you know, sort of the face-to-face. -face. Not that that's going to be supplanted, but certainly this is going to be another, um, you know, sort of venue in terms of how health is delivered. And whether you're getting texts or you're getting a chat or something through an interface on your supercomputer in your pocket, uh, that will give you information that can help inform how you should live uh, a better and more healthy lifestyle. I think that's going to be a trend that's going to continue as well. And I think AI is going to continue to foster and, 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 and build in that sort of uh, capacity of, of, of a change in the delivery of how we receive healthcare. My guest has been Dr. Teta. Doctor, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Uh, Mike, thank you for uh, the kind invitation and the uh, uh, gracious uh, hospitality to visit with you and your audience today. I really appreciate it. My thanks to Captain Teta for his time and service. I hope that you found this interview as interesting as I did. My thanks also to the American Association for Physician Leadership for making this podcast possible. Please join me next time on Sound Practice. We drop a new episode every other Wednesday. You've been listening to Sound Practice, the business podcast for physicians and healthcare leaders. Check out the show notes for this episode at soundpracticepodcast.com. If you have any suggestions for future episodes, we'd love to hear them. Email us at info at soundpracticepodcast.com. Subscribe to Sound Practice wherever you listen to podcasts so you can automatically receive our episodes. And please rate us and comment on the podcast in iTunes and Google Play. Sound Practice is presented and produced by the team at American Association for Physician Leadership. We are the world's premier organization for all aspects of physician leadership in every sector of healthcare. Learn more at physicianleaders.org. Man and Robin. Rick Kapow.